Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is, as always, excellent to have you along with us. And uh, back on the school principal's couch from last week is <laughs> Stu and Tim. How are you guys? Good, thanks, Good. Joel. <laughs> I feel like you've just got in trouble and you're, like, waiting in the in the office. It's a bit like that. What are you yeah. rubbing your hands together well, for? Well, in the 80s, when we used to get in trouble and yeah. waiting at the principal's office, we might get the cane. Oh, so you so warming if we got the cane, you'd uh-huh. warm your hand up, and then when the cane hit, wasn't as wasn't as painful. So this is great. I'm glad oh, you no, brought this up. It was a theory. So you did it across your yeah the tips of your fingers. They call it the cuts. Six are the best. It was it always six or was it more? Oh, I don't know. It depends on the teacher. It was it was a bit barbaric. Yeah, but so you warm it up doesn't hurt as much, and then you go like that, especially on a cold day. Yeah, you got like the cuts on a cold winter. day. It was not nice. Mm. Have you experienced the cane? Uh, I haven't, but my wife has. Really? Yeah, Someone she, gave her the cane. Yeah, she got the cane. A I didn't think girls got the cane. Well, they did it at my school. Mm. Actually, the school, our school was the last school in New South Wales to get rid of the cane, I believe. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's a good thing to get rid of the cane. Yeah, I never experienced it. Mm. My dad used to always tell me that the the school that he went to, they'd like wrap you across the knuckles with a ruler, like a. Wooden ruler. Kind of thing. That sounds yeah. even more painful. Yeah. Yeah, our year two teacher still brought the ruler out every now and then. She broke a ruler over a kid. Can't remember which. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So yeah. she wasn't measuring things. I, no. <laughs> no. That was a bit of a slap on the mm. knuckles. You know those giant T-squares that people used to use in, like, taking taking oh, drawing yeah. and stuff? Yeah. At my school, someone once, like, hit someone in the back with the short end of it. Like, look at the long end of it and went... Like you hit someone in the back with it. Really? Like like that would hurt, yeah. Like that would hurt a lot. <laughs> yes, right? it's, it's almost know. a medieval wound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's dreadful. Yes. Well, anyway, talking about wooden implements that are hurting people. It's a good. Start, it's a good start to the podcast. Well done, thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> cultural artifact. I can't even remember what we decided to do. It's similar. I was talking about gladiators. Oh yes, gladiators. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, because you, you not last week or maybe it's two weeks ago. You brought it. You used it in a sermon. I did. I, yeah, yeah. We're talking um, about the not the uh, Russell Crowe gladiator, but the um, TV phenomena that is gladiators with the people in spandex wrestling each other. So has it amazing tasks been redone. Is that why? Yeah, this is its second reboot in Australia. Um, I believe it's originally maybe UK. I think it's a UK, UK show. Yeah, I think it's a UK. Um, and I believe that the UK have just relaunched it recently as well. So I think there might be a bit of a kind of push to get it back in the cultural imagination. Uh, but the original Australian one came out in the mid-90s uh, and I was in year six, year seven, I think. So sort of prime age to really enjoy that silly, over-the-top, you know, wrestle and um, activities and those kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, so I loved it uh, in the 90s. What was the, the major appeal, do you think? Um, just like yeah, people just, it was just wrestling. I mean, it was yeah, it was, it was interesting. There's different tasks that they're trying to achieve, and um, there's the over the top silliness of you know people in lycra and um, you know body suits just you know chasing after the competitors, and you've got the characters you're always you know interested. In, oh, here's because you got the um, the, yeah, the what's cast. The premise? Tell us what happens. There's a cast of gladiators. So there's a cast of gladiators. Yeah. So there's all these um, muscly. Yeah, men and women, uh, mm. and they're the regular regulars on the show. Mm. Um, and then every week they bring in a competitor mm-hmm. who then does different uh, tasks and activities against the gladiators. And so, yeah, there's you know, there's a big 
tug of war, which is, you know, 10 metres off the ground um, and they're trying to pull each other and the, and the platform that they're on tilts back and forward as well, just give you a bit some, you know, add um, some instability to the task. Uh, there's, um, what do you call the pummel sticks? What do you... Oh, you've got to... Yeah, you've got to kind of knock the other person. Again, you're kind of five metres off the ground and you're trying to knock the other person off. Um, is it a pyramid? Yeah, there's a pyramid, which, yeah, I don't know, about a metre high step. So it's kind of high enough to be a, quite a large leg workout to get up each step. Um, but they're all big foam steps and uh, this contenders start down the bottom. The gladiators are at the top, so you've got to get past the gladiator to get to the top. But, you know, they do massive flying tackles and pull them down. And, um, yeah, there's one where they're um, flat surface. You've got these five goals, uh, sort of upright goals in the middle, two contenders, three gladiators in the middle, and you're trying to grab balls from the safe zone and then run into the field and drop them in the upright goals and they're, you know, tackling you and throwing you outside. So it's just this, you know, um, it, those, you know, if people might remember even earlier, sort of in the 80s, there was It's a Knockout. Um, oh, yeah. Was the, and it, it was the same. They didn't quite have that same kind of uh, expert gladiator challenge, but it was that same kind of like there was outrageously silly over the top kind of activities that you're trying to compete against, win points, those kinds of things. And I think it just kind of brought that into, um, you know, almost a one-on-one -on -one personal thing. Um, and then, yeah, throughout the episode, you're, you're doing all these activities against the gladiators, you're winning points along the way. And then the points translate into um, head start. So you're, you're two male competitors, they'll have been earning points, then the point difference between them, so if one person got 10 more points than the other, that turns into a five second head start on the last activity, which is this you know, oh. big eliminator, um, which is, you know, they've, uh, it's, it's about 10 different things you've got to do. So there's, there's over the hand monkey bars, there's, um, uh, whatever, you've got to go up and down the pyramid, you've got a rope net, um, so you've got all these activities. So it's just this brutal, you know, almost ninja warrior type course you've yeah. got to get through. Um, and then the final run is there's these travelators um, up a hill which are running backwards. So you'll have to run against them up to the top and then you that's your final, you know, compete. So then it's, yeah, it's just, there's all that competition, you know. Um, yeah, I just find it really enjoyable. So I showed my kids, it's just relaunched and my kids again, high school. Um, and so I thought, oh, this would be brilliant for it. Both Ros and I really loved it as teenagers, so we thought we'd show it to our kids. And they didn't really know what to expect, and <laughs> we tried to tell them that it was just awesome. They're sitting there, but it's so over the top and campy, and the commentating is just ridiculous, um, and yeah, bad dad jokes and bad puns all the way through. So it, like it, it plays on the silliness of the whole thing. Uh, and so my kids were sitting there going, what? on earth is this? Like they couldn't quite comprehend. And then once Maybe they- doesn't bode well for the relaunch, does <laughs> it? Well, no, but like they got one or two episodes in and they realised, oh no, that's its thing. Like that's its shtick, oh, okay. Okay. is okay. that it's it's silly. It's ridiculous. It's mm. over the top. Mm. Um, there's bad, you know, bad jokes all the way through. Um, mm. And so once they got into that and they're like, oh, that's what this is. Now they, they love it. They really oh, enjoy okay. it. Cool. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, right. How scripted is it? Um, I mean, the I don't think there's necessarily... I mean, the, the commentary, uh, there's a lot of scripting, I think, to the way that they do that. Um, I mean, who knows how you know, rigged the actual competitions mm. are and you know, whether the gladiators are throwing 
events every now and then to heighten yeah. the expectation that oh no they they won against the gladiator that's yeah. exciting yeah um, i mean who knows but mm. um yeah there's a lot of uh scripted silliness between mm. the two hosts um i was only asking because i watched the youtube video of um a commentator at a professional wrestling like in wwe wrestling right yeah, yeah and they i'm pretty sure that the commentators have the scripts of what's meant to happen in every match so they can hype up the the commentary. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it was quite interesting, actually. But yeah, it's interesting how much massive that industry is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, I, I wouldn't suspect it was as scripted mm. as those WWE type things. So there, there does appear to be genuine competition in there, um, and I mean, and genuine injury as well. Like the, the first few episodes, particularly, there were contenders who had to be retired out because oh, wow. the tackle went so hard that oh, really? yeah, yeah yeah so they the people have been taken off um by the medics and then they've got substitute contenders who come in um and take their place so <laughs> um yeah so there, there does seem to be genuine competition in it um and there's just genuine uh athleticism as well i mean to to do the task that they're doing requires genuine you know, hard work and athleticism and strength. So, you know, it's just, you know, kind of watching the Olympic Games. You know, you're, you're impressed by the athleticism that's on display and, you know, but, you know, mm. head to head. It's pretty fun. Um, and I suppose that one thing that people might be listening is like, how did you make that an applicable <laughs> point in a sermon? <laughs> I think yeah. you used it to, like, anchor a lot of the sermon, right? Well, I, well, it, it came out of... So the, the passage was James, James 5, and about prayer. And what I, as I was sort of exegeting James, what I noticed was he talks about um, patience, persistence, and power uh, as kind of the ways to frame prayer. And because I've been watching Gladiators, it was already on my <laughs> mind. So I didn't intentionally you know, want to talk about Gladiators, but as I was thinking about the way that James describes those things, persistence, patience, and power, so well, actually, though, all those three also resonate with what's going on in Gladiators, uh, but in a way that highlights very different applications. So, and the way that I kind of weaved all that in back and forward was to show that the, in Gladiators, the persistence, the patience, and the power all comes from the individual. Um, and so it's it's my persistence, it's the amount of power that I can put in, the, the power that's on display is my muscles, my body, my athleticism. Um, and yet in James, it's a, this stark contrast that actually the persistence, the patience and the power of prayer all come from the character of God. So it's external to us. Um, and so I finished, the encouragement was, um, here is sort of a, a secular worldly version of those things where uh, we are the centre of the universe, we are what makes things great um, and we are the ones who are primarily the active agent in the world um, and actually that's not the Christian story. The Christian story is that God is the primary active agent and when we act, we only act because of what he has done. Uh, we act because of his character, we act because of what he's already done uh, in history and um, any power that comes in prayer is not because of something internal to us but it's because of who God is and so I try to contrast those two things um, and a large part of that was also trying to do sort of worldview analysis as well which I had been in my mind because I talked on that at a, a Christian school earlier 
in the week as well where they'd asked me to come do some devotionals. But a big part of my conversation with them was we need to um, – we are not in a Christian world. Most people that we interact with are not Christians. Um, and so therefore, particularly as we raise young people to know and love Jesus, we need to uh, exegete for them – what the secular worldview is that they're coming up against and they're seeing in all of their social media, all of their normal media, um, and most of the people that they interact with uh, have these values and the Christian values are very, very distinct because of who Christ is, which is different to, you know, go back two generations where the overlap between being a good Australian and being a good Christian had huge similarities. The values are very similar, even if most people didn't go to church, which they didn't. Most people weren't disciples of Jesus but the values overlapped to a greater extent what we've seen in the last 15 years um, is those pulling apart of what it means to be a good Australian and what it means to be a good Christian the values are pulling further and further apart and so what that means is the majority of the values and beliefs and patterns and practices that our young people will bump into in the world are not Christian and so we can't just assume that uh, they'll grow up to be a relatively good Christian by interacting in normal society um, and that they'll imbibe those values um, if we don't intentionally teach them here are the post-Christian values and here are the Christian values and you need to know that as you walk around the world you will be in the minority. You will uh, if we don't do that explicit teaching, um, then they're not going to know the difference and they're going to be more un- taken up by yeah, the 90% than the, the 10%. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, th- I was trying to – I explained a lot of that with my, my Christian school devotions because that, w- that was the focus and I just tried to model that a little bit in that sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot in there that Tim just brought up, Stu, but is there anything that you particularly piqued your interest about what he was saying in terms of, I think that's right, there is a, a, a widening divide between what is Australian and what is being an Australian Christian, I suppose. Would you agree with what Tim was saying? Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, the unspoken uh, consideration is often what sort of posture do, do we have towards the world? And Tim mm. is describing simply alerting particularly the young people to that so that I think it's really helpful Tim because I don't think when I was growing up people articulated what I think I just sensed was happening there's a whole heap of different voices in my life and church is one of them Um, I think going to church and listening to sermons it was almost like it was considered that's our world but there wasn't a lot of discussion about how do you make those decisions on a small scale in your life you know how do you you're in a re- in my day it was you're in a record shop and there's th- you got enough you got 7.99 and you can buy a record <laughs> do you buy motorhead or not is that a good thing to buy like is black sabbath bad because they've got an upside down cross some people were saying it's bad some people weren't but we often would get um i think as young people kind of confused on the daily small decisions that we used to have to make Excuse me. Even a show like you were talking about, It's a Knockout, was fairly bland. But when you turn on the TV, there's all sorts of messages coming at you. And how do you, what do you watch? Do you watch some of it, not some other stuff? Um, 
Yeah, it's an interesting factor. And it raised for me when you were talking, the ideas we were talking about on the podcast a little while ago about Andy Crouch's idea that there's different postures Christians can take towards culture. And he makes a distinction between gestures and, co- and postures. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard that podcast or seen it, uh, you know, he, he talks about Christians can condemn culture sometimes. Sometimes there's a, I mean, I've walked out of movie theatres in the first five minutes of a movie because I just didn't want to sit there and watch what was on the screen, even though I paid for it. Mm. So I suppose that was a gesture towards condemning that. But if I condemn all media like that as bad, then that might be what's called a posture. And if I develop a posture of always condemning all the movies that come out, then that might not be the greatest interaction I can have with culture. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, if I just sit back and critique it, I mean, we're doing a bit of that in this podcast, we're critiquing culture all the time. But he says there's a good gesture towards critiquing culture, but if that's all we do and our posture is always critiquing culture, when that's not very creative either. That's just, mm. a, that's just a wait and see what happens in culture and then say something about it on the podcast. And it's interesting and helpful to, to consider what record to buy or consider the records that are coming out but it doesn't really help me the day to day work out how to engage with culture it's a fairly um, um, passive posture towards culture where I'm yeah, it's more reactionary than it is yeah. proactive yeah, yeah, yeah. This engagement. Yeah. yeah and likewise two positive cultural postures and gestures are copying culture or consuming culture so some Christians just copy it so we go to the record store, oh, there's a Black Sabbath re- record, let's go back to church and try and see if we can recreate that sound and a Christian, a Christian version yeah. of Black Sabbath. That's a copying culture. Consumption culture is, oh, I'm not even going to worry about going to church anymore, I'll just go and listen to my records and not think about it too much. I'm considering myself a Christian, but I just consume culture unthinkingly. Well, all those things, even though they're different gestures and postures, are all actually very passive. And what I really like about Andy Crouch is he says that a good posture towards culture is a creative posture. Uh, posture sorry. So to be thinking creatively about what sort of culture can we create as a church is, mm. is a better way, I think, of dealing with that question. Mm. And then, yeah, you're always looking and getting influenced by culture or critiquing it or whatever. They're all gestures rather than postures. But if you make creativity the posture, then that's a more positive way of seeing culture, I think. I think I like all the, those things that you're actually talking about. I, and I think even discussing it in a way that you are discussing it is maybe not being creative, but I don't think you're also critiquing as well. So I think it's just even having the discussion, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, mm. is a way of perhaps not being creative, I suppose. You're not, maybe, maybe we are on the podcast. We are creating something out of it, aren't we? But mm. I think there's just, yeah, to be reactionary all the time, can possibly not be very helpful for people that are perhaps even interested in Christianity. Or if you if they see being a Christian is the only thing, the only thing that you do is critique what's going on in culture. Mm. Like, well, why would I? You're just critiquing the culture that I'm part mm. of. I think, but yeah, and I think I think sometimes as Christians we feel a bit hokey about culture and creating culture we think oh we're a bit try hard if we try and make culture cringy or sometimes yeah yeah, a bit cringy or sometimes we're the opposite and super confident and you know we make all our merch and we chuck our stickers on our cars and drive (laughs) around like like it's the same as gladiator on tv or whatever (laughs) but i think one of the good things about what crouch says is 
we can make creative cultures at the small scale of our local church and it doesn't really matter how many people listen to it or get into it. It is still we're creating culture. So this podcast, like it's a it's a small podcast, and we really love it. And I know there's a number of people who are watching it and listening to it that you know you've let us um, you know share our thoughts each week, and some of you are sharing your thoughts too. And it's a it's a, a creative endeavour. Mm. Uh, the success of that endeavour is not based on how many people listen or how many people but the people who are doing it together like we are are enjoying it and getting something out of it and it's contributing to our lives mm. and i think that's a really exciting liberating way of seeing local church that doesn't matter how big it is in numbers it's actually are we being true to the word of god are we preaching the gospel are we calling on people to grow as disciples to be on mission together and if we're doing those things and being creative about how we do it then that's great we shouldn't be sort of comparing ourselves to the church down the road saying, oh, we'll only be successful if we've got that many people. Or, um, Yeah, there's a bit of a idea in Western culture that the bigger the better, but actually it's pretty exciting just to be Christian and be creative in this culture. And I think, you know, we're all doing our little church gatherings every week and being creative and coming up with podcasts or, or different Mm. Uh, cultural artifacts which is actually really fun it's a really good mm. way to live i reckon i remember going through a, a, a period of my life thinking that i would like i wasn't a creative in a sense but often that term is only used for someone that's doing something that's mm. you know music or art or something it's funny because like i think you're heaps creative yeah. well thank you that's very kind but then i remember a great um uh, uh discussion that i had once on one of our weekaways with um someone we all know karen roach and she was like well i think in a different way that god is a creative god and he's created us as individuals and therefore we can be creative in our own way and it doesn't always have to be art or it doesn't have has to be writing or anything i'm like oh yeah that's a really great mm. point so like we're empowered i think by the gospel to be able to do what you're saying mm. and um yeah I've, since having that discussion i was like oh you, yeah you can actually you, know, you don't have to play music to be a creative karen's god. a great case study actually because mm. like you said she was really well known at our church back in the day and for those who don't know Karen she's uh, she, her work was in uh, it was archaeology I'm trying yeah. to get it right she was an archaeologist who was looking at Iranian or but no Persian uh, scrolls yeah yep and these little scrolls are like these little clay scrolls that were like um, they'd press little characters into the scroll and then they dip them in ink and then roll them on a something or did they use them to create another clay anyway they used to make writing that way and so mm. all these little scrolls are kind of discarded all over the desert in persia oh because they've and done it and just chucked it yeah, away just, I, i've written that um speeding fine now you can <laughs> speeding you know <laughs> no i don't need that anymore <laughs> so <laughs> well yeah here's the shopping list for today you know how fast your chariot was yeah. going yeah, that's right <laughs> here's the shopping list for today yeah. on my way to woolies <laughs> <laughs> don't need anymore kind of like we just discard an email or we you know used to discard a letter in the mm. bin after we read it so she re she studies all that but when she'd sit down and talk about what she learnt about people through that it was so unreal mm. and yeah so i think it's i think we are are as christians called to be creative yeah i think it's a good thing well uh, going back to the, the couple of things that you were talking about in terms of australian culture and being creative or do we critique it or those kind of things um there's a, a a pastor online called Dave Adamson. Mm. Uh, he's an Australian, but he's he spent a lot of time in 
in ministry in the US and he did a Twitter thread which I thought might be interesting to get your responses to. So he said, uh, I'm, he starts off by saying, I'm praying for Australian church leaders. Good start. <laughs> but he says that after 14 years in full-time ministry in the US and I've been back in Australia for three years, I've learned, uh, relearned that this is one of the hardest places in the world to be in ministry in comparison to where he was um, in America. Um, and he's got a few points. So I thought we might start with one point and then go back and forward about that and then go to the next one. So his first one is, post-Christian Australia is not just apathetic towards church, it is openly antagonistic towards it. Recent events like the Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse in the Church, coupled with the general mistrust of pastors, has added new difficulty to an already arduous calling. Add to this the most recent Australian census data, which showed there are fewer Christians in Australia than ever before, and you can understand why many pastors experience burnout. When you're constantly swimming against the tide, you are bound to experience fatigue. Who wants to go first on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on, you know, on burnout and what causes it, but I, it, it sounds like he's critiquing, or not critiquing, he's, he's commenting on there's an expectation of how easy or, or what or what ministry should look like, mm-hmm. um, and when that doesn't happen, I, I feel like burnout comes from when your expectations are mismatched with reality. You expect things to be in this particular way, and when ex, when you the reality comes across and mis, mismatches with that, um, that creates a stress point that can lead to burnout. And if you're constantly ministering in uh, stress. Uh, and stress response and don't have ways out of that, then that's going to help lead to, to burnout. Um, and so my wondering is, to, is it about, do, do we think that uh, we're ministering to a culture that we're not ministering to? Um, in, in other words, do, do ministers think that we're ministering in, yeah, in, the, in the 90s or in the 80s or yeah, in the 60s where you could just open the door and a thousand kids from the community would come in and we're now in the 2020s and we open our doors and no one from the community comes in and we just go oh well like things aren't working um and if if the mismatch is i've got an expectation of what ministry should be like um versus the reality is that what's causing that stress i was wondering where the that connection point is whereas if we we realize the moment where they were in um, and this is what I was trying to communicate to the, the Christian school teachers that I was um, talking to for a couple of days a few weeks back um, was you know we, we need to realize that you know if we are in the minority and we are and we don't have uh, what Peter Berger the sociologist would call a sacred canopy which is the, the the moral framework of your society is largely matching the Christian framework so when you walk out you've got this canopy of you know generally people agree that the Ten Commandments are a good moral framework generally speaking people uh, would say that the values of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount are generally good. Like if you've got that as a cultural framework, then you've got this sacred canopy that you can walk around in and you'd be relatively safe. We don't have the sacred canopy anymore. It's completely gone. Um, And one of the things that um, 
trying to think who it is. I think it might be Christian Smith, the sociologist, has taken that idea and said, yes, but churches can create sacred umbrellas. Um, so it's not as large as a canopy, but it creates small little versions of that. So when you come into the church, you realise, oh, here is the space where we can reaffirm to each other and we can live out those values. But we need to remember, we need to realise, and as we train people up to be disciples of Jesus, it's this, uh, they need to be told and be made aware of the fact that they are the minority. Um, and I, I wonder if too many churches uh, either assume that we're still the majority culture um, or are spending a lot of time bemoaning the fact that we're not rather than going, okay, we're not. Let's just get on with it. Let's, let's get on with being the church, being disciples of Jesus, where we are the minority. Um, and even though we, we're post-Christian, so we, we've come through Christendom, in the West, and we're now out the other side. So it's not exactly the same as the early church in the Roman Empire, but I think that there are parallels in that they were minorities um, in a very secular society. Um, and you know what God used to actually explode Christianity across the West was their faithfulness to the ordinariness of life, um, and they were being creative, as Andy Crouch would say. You know they. They didn't go around, you know, necessarily critiquing um, the, you know, the abortion rates or the exposure rates, but they just went out and they collected kids and they brought them in because they knew that God would want them to collect kids from the, the scrap heaps and from the places where kids were given, left out to exposure. Um, and so they, just, they were just positive. And so what we actually have in the records is we have Romans who are writing to each other going, how outrageously crazy are these Christians? Um, we hate them so much because not only do they look after each other, they look after us as well and they've given us a really bad name. Um, and so you've got this, this uh, they're just being faithful in the small things. They're living out discipleship of Jesus in minority culture where it's very, very hard, where they know that the most people they will interact with as they walk out their front door uh, will not share their beliefs, patterns and practices. And they just know that that's reality. Um, but it's being faithful there, being creative, um, in the way that they express that in their community that actually shone the light um, and was the salt um, of the gospel into that, which actually caused that, you know, over a couple, few hundred years, the explosion into then became the dominant religion of the West. Now, what are the, you know, what are the parallels? That's what intrigues me about this cultural moment is, you know, church-going disciples of Jesus, probably close to single digits, um, in Australia, maybe you know, ten to twelve percent. Um, you know, what is it? Forty-three percent tick Christian on a census box, but we know the majority of those are not actually weekly church-going uh, disciples of Jesus. Uh, they're just still enculturated enough that they will tick the Christian box on a census. So, you know, ninety percent probably of the people we walk out, and particularly young people, because the the number of non-religious increases the younger the generations go. Um, so for our kids, 90% of the people they'll interact with are not Christian. Um, and so part of what it means to raise disciples is just to tell them that. Make sure they know 90% or more of the music you listen to will not be Christian values. 90% or more of the TV and movies, of the people you're watching, of the social media you're consuming, of all of these kind of things. Um, and it, having that strong identity... And like we've talked about in previous podcasts, it's the non-anxious 
confidently Christian, uh, creative <laughs> uh, Christianity that just says, okay, I'm the minority. How do I now live as, as, as a disciple of Jesus? I think that that's going to um, help us to know how to minister well in, in a post-Christian Australia. Yeah, right. And I suppose with Dave's experience when he's saying in his thread, is it maybe the US is more open to having more people come to church, for example, than Australia is? Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's a very big country. I think you'd, yeah, you know, different yeah, no, it's pockets would be people. very different, but yeah. yeah. <coughs> yeah. I, sh- I should also say that um, Dave's very welcome to come on the podcast if he, if he feels like he's able to to, to discuss this because we're not trying to be super critical. No, but, it'd be good hmm. to hear his thoughts. Yeah. But I was going to ask you, Stu, in your years of ministry, do you think that Australia has become more antagonistic towards the church? Yeah, I mean, I'm just speaking from my experience, which is very limited, and I grew up in a very... Um, Anglo part of Sydney, Solon Shire, and, you know, people would kind of call it a Bible Belt. So there's lots of churches and lots of people go to church. You'd expect that there would be a bigger umbrella in a Bible Belt where there's lots of Mm. people going to church, but my experience in school was the opposite of that. So Mm. when I went to Kirawi High School in the 80s, um, there was only two of us who were Christians, who were Christians at school. So there were other kids at school who would have gone to church um, at one stage. There were more than two actually around the traps, but there was two of us at one stage who were trying to get the inter-school Christian fellowship group going and there wasn't a lot of people who wanted to join. Uh, a lot of people kept their heads down as Christians because um, I actually found it quite a antagonistic environment towards mm. my faith actually. So I got called all sorts of names for being a Christian and... Uh, the irony was, I remember that we, we had a uh, one of our teachers was a uh, one of our teachers was gay, and the kids in the eighties were pretty ruthless towards um, him. And I remember standing up for him as a Christian, thinking that's not right. You shouldn't bully people like that. And so I sort of stood up for the teacher, saying, you know, that's not right. So then I got labelled all sorts of names as well, and got called uh, all sorts of names. And, yeah, so there was this sense that Christianity was weak and powerless and daggy and effeminate. And a lot of my friends thought that the action was in the pubs where there was lots of alcohol and sexual promiscuity and drugs. Not not heaps of drugs in the 80s, but uh, the the upshot of that was that yeah, I don't. I don't remember going from a, a world of in the local high sc- state high schools of oh yeah, Christians accepted, and actually it's people who aren't Christians who are getting bullied. Like listening to some people these days, you'd think that all the non-Christian people were getting bullied by the Christians who were in the majority. But yeah, I, I remember it being very different to that, and it was the same for the kids that went through the nineties at the same school. Even though there was a lot more Christians, they used to get harassed by some of the teachers as well. Actually. Yeah. Um, so there's, there was this big thing of, oh, what, you, you believe in a seven-day creation and people would laugh at you. Oh, do you believe someone rose from the dead? And I'd then try and explain that there's different views on creation and people would just laugh at you. And Yeah, so there was a bit of a sense of that hostility. I also think if you look back to the 80s at the Azaria uh, Chamberlain incident where I can't remember the name of her parents now, the Chamberlains, Lin, um, Linda, was it Linda, Lindall, Linda, hmm. Lindy, Lindy Chamberlain uh, and her husband Michael, Michael uh, were 
camping at Ayers Rock and, the, and a, one of the dingoes took their baby and it just became this running meme and everyone was so down on it. But I watched a documentary on it the other day and this documentary writer was saying that their Christian faith was part of the reason why people were piling onto them because they're a part of, I think it was, I don't want to get it wrong, I, I think sure Seventh-day Seventh Adventist, Seventh Day Adventist yeah, I think. Yeah. And so because that wasn't Anglican or Baptist or whatever, there was this suspicion towards that. And because she didn't kind of show what people thought was appropriate emotion when she was on TV, piled on it. Anyway, there was this video of her going to the court case and all these mothers lined up with T-shirts on that were saying that she was of the devil or some, something kind of quite horrible. Um, and the documentary writer was saying it was because she was a Christian that people in Australia don't mind considering themselves being a bit religious, but they don't trust churchy people, people who take it too far. So I think that's a good summary for a country that had this supposed umbrella of faith over it. But there was actually a lot of nominalism where people just went to church and, yeah, they paid lip service to a lot of the values that the church has, but I think there's a lot of people who weren't living those out. And, and there was still hostility. Yeah, and this is the caricature you see on The Simpsons, right, where you've got, you know, um, the Simpson family go to church. Like they're, they're there regularly. Um, and yet you've got, you know, Ned Flanders who actually takes his faith seriously and tries to put it into mm. action in a, you know, kind of awkward socially unaware kind of way mm. and he's the butt of jokes so you know um the simpsons attendance at church is just normal um yeah go along but don't take it too seriously it's fine um but when you take it seriously oh, okay now you're suspicious or mm. you know um awkward yeah. or yeah the butt mm. of a joke uh, mm. if you actually take go from mere some sort of uh, attendance slash ident like you know Margin home would probably tick Christian on the census mm. when it came through, um, but it doesn't really. In their faith doesn't really impact mm. most of the, their life. Mm. Mm. There's a strange element of Australian culture, isn't it? And maybe it's related. Like it's just the tall poppy syndrome, but of like, don't be too interested in anything in particular. Maybe, Otherwise, yeah. we'll cut you down. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know why that is though. Why is it that a Particularly Australian. I mean, that's thing. a whole other podcast, isn't it? It it's is. Poppy <laughs> syndrome, but it does relate to leadership because then mm. you know, some of our American friends sometimes say to us that that yeah, there is a different level of respect you get in some churches in America right. compared to churches in Australia, where just being a pastor doesn't mean that you're going to get respected. You've got to kind of earn it some more mm. in Australia. But also that that point about it's not just a new phenomenon. I mean, I was watching TV last week and there was an ad for maths which is that Married at First Sight show, which I can honestly say I've never watched an episode of, but I've seen many ads for. Mm -hmm. And the premise of that show is two people meet each other for the first time, then they get married. Anyway, this the, the, the grab from the show that was on the ad was this lady saying, oh, if, if I walked into a church, I'd instantly combust. <laughs> I'd just burn like this. And I was like, wow, that's not a new thing. That's no. not a new saying. That's an old Aussie saying. Another partner to that is if I went into a church, the roof had fallen on me yeah, because yeah, yeah. I'm so sinful and I'm so not churchy. So, yeah, I, I think as we see culture change and we feel like we're becoming more isolated, I don't think we are becoming more isolated. I think in some ways we're just in the same kind of logic that we've always been in. I mean, you think about the first fleet when they first arrived in Australia uh, – 
they had a chaplain and the chaplain built a church and the people in the colony burnt it down. <laughs> they burnt his church down. Mm. And that, so the next church, which we now say is the first church, is made out of stone, so it can't get burnt burn down. down. <laughs> That's why they made out of stone. So, mm. so yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's like a difference there. What's going on? I mean, there was a moment in the 90s that I think we had a particularly interesting open window to the gospel. I think the birth of grunge music was a questioning of Western culture. I think right through the 70s and 80s, there was this exaltation of sinfulness and excess. And uh, particularly in the 80s, there was this whole idea of greed is good. And everyone was like getting on this bandwagon that you could flaunt your wealth. And uh, yeah, the stories in, in London of people driving around in Maseratis down the main streets of London drinking champagne <laughs> with, you know, on their way to work or something as they're driving <laughs> along and, you know, pretty girls in the back of the car and yeah. stuff. But in the 90s, all of a sudden, Kurt Cobain came on stage and just said, actually, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of sadness. And as soon as ne Nevermind came out, Nirvana just mass became massive and a whole generation of Gen Xs just went, yeah, what is the point of all this materialism? It doesn't actually give us anything. And I think there was another moment earlier in the 60s where that happened with the hippie culture. And I think that's why the Jesus movement birthed out of the 60s. And to a lesser extent in the 90s, a lot of us in youth ministry in Sydney in the 90s had explosions in our youth groups. Like you talk to a lot of people my age and we'll talk about really thriving healthy youth groups. Because I think there was a rejection of consumerism and capitalism in those two moments. But the baby boomers went on to be the, the 80s generation driving their Maseratis. So one minute they're having communes and saying, let's drop out of society when they're in their 40s, they're driving Maseratis and they're on the stock market. I think similar thing with Gen Xs, we started off being really desiring something deeper, more community, more belonging, mm. more sense of who we are, but we've become just as individualistic and, and materialistic as every other generation. I think the thing that worries me is uh, that there was a study came out in the, about 2008 called The Spirit of gen y and it was saying that the problem is that each new generation is becoming more secular and less spiritual less interested in spiritual things and more materialistic and i think that actually is the real challenge we have in sydney i think yes there are all these other thought systems filling the gap that was once held by the uh the church during the period of um the last two thousand years um now it's changed, the church isn't at the centre of society and all these other ideas are coming in and do concern Christians when they hear all these other things like progressive ideas around um, you know, gender and things like that. But I think that's there's just a, a vying for the centre with the absence of the Christian umbrella probably. Yeah. But when you look at it, the, the same problem Australians had in the 80s is still the same problem we have today, which is materialism. Yeah. And I think that that might be something for us to just have a bit more of a think about in the next decade. How can we be living in a materialistic world and be a spiritual people? Yeah. So to come back to David's uh, Twitter thread then, um, Stu, your perspective as a, as a minister, um, what do you think would be some of those causes of the burnout that he's describing, that ministers are feeling burnt out by Doing, trying to do gospel ministry mm. in Australia. Mm. Swimming against the tide. Swimming against the tide. Yeah, I think it. swimming against the tide is a big part of it. But I also think there's a lot more expectation on ministers in some ways. I mean, there's always been a high expectation on ministers and it's n never been an easy job. Mm. But I think there is an expected skill set that a minister has that's almost unattainable. Mm. 
like we need to be a preacher, a pastor. We need to be uh, expert in tech, in communications, in social media. Uh, we need to be a counsel, not a counselor, because we we don't counsel, but we do do a lot of pastoral care. Mm. Um, I also think it's really interesting that in the period of Christendom that I was describing the last two thousand years, that ministers did just open their doors and people would come. So I think the other part of the burnout is Christian ministers are constantly having to do mission as well as discipleship when they once upon a time just mainly did discipleship. So uh-huh. they were caring for the people coming along, but now they've got to try and work out how to do their church in a compelling way. And I said in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, well, it was actually last week, that I think that ministers spend an extraordinary amount of time talking Christians into coming to church now. So once upon a time, Christians would come to church on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, didn't have anything else to do. But these days, a regular Christian attendee is coming once a month. So with that once a month, um, issue comes a whole heap of financial issues, a whole heap of other things. And there's a whole heap of people who are busy and burnt out looking at the minister saying, you know, we, we're looking to you to turn this church around or, or keep solve, it growing or start it growing. So it's quite an enormous task. And there are some sociological realities that mean particularly smaller churches find it very difficult to grow in an ecosystem where there are medium-sized and larger churches around them. And um, the Anglican Church has brought out some statistics suggesting that um, we haven't lost a lot of young people during COVID in the Anglican Church, but they've moved from the smaller churches to the bigger churches. Maybe So they're the, looking for a bigger like expression. Like the digital ministry was a bit easier to produce or something like well, that. Well, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I think young people just want to be with a lot of young people. Mm. So if you're in a small church and you've only got 10 young people or two, they're not going to want to hang around, they're going to move, then the ch- how does the church... So the, I think all that stuff contributes to burnout personally but then all the books we read from america and the expectations we put on ourselves as well um there's also a lot of legal stuff just to finish um heaps of legal stuff that we didn't used to have to worry about but now we have to do all these safe ministry th- checks and all this sort of stuff so yeah there's a lot of a lot of stuff to do and it's yeah i mean the safe ministry example is a response to the royal commission mm. By the Anglican Church, which is one of the things that Dave brought up. Mm. I just thought to move on to the next point that he had in his thread, though. He says that that they constantly. He's saying that pastors are constantly swimming against the tide, so they're bound to experience fatigue. So I think you did hit on a, a lot of mm. those points. He and says, that's that's in keeping with what he's saying, yeah. Because a lot of that is what he just described. Mm, yeah. I think so. And then he says, as a coping mechanism to serving in this that kind of antagonistic environment, we've created a largely insider-focused church culture built understandably for survival both for the people in ministry and the people who go to church and so as a result sunday services can focus like alcoholics anonymous meetings aa meetings where we have a safe place surrounded by people who know who we know share our stories and we encourage us and provide us support that kind of comes back to the umbrella analogy that you were talking about tim do you think but also it's almost like that's something we've talked about again in the last few weeks is all the last few episodes that we've put out is do we, do we just go to church to be a Christian on Sundays or Saturdays or whenever your church service is and then you're in the culture of the rest of the week or are you a Christian for the entirety of the week too? I think those two things go together. What do you, what do you think, Tim? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've lost a lot of thoughts. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> in and out of that. Um, 
Yes, I think there is. Uh, when we come to church, I mean, church is uh, uh, one of the functions of church is when we come, we are surrounded by um, others and there is an equipping and an encouragement that goes on it, and rightly so, that this is the place where um, I am with those who are, you know, also walking along this journey of following Jesus and seeking to be a disciple of Jesus alongside each other. And again, for most of our parishioners, most of them are in secular workplaces, uh, secular schools. Um, they, they might have one or two Christian friends, neighbours, you know, in, people in their household. Um, but church becomes uh, a really significant place where the majority of those at the church are sharing this journey with Jesus uh, together. And so when we, we rightly see it in that way, um, I think that that's a really helpful thing. And then uh, when non-Christians come to church to check out Jesus um, and to check out what the community of God is actually all about, they should see people who are investing deeply with each other um, and that's a good thing. I think we have become uh, insular in some ways. I think there is a tendency, largely because it... Depends on the size of the church, but there can be a lot of things going on in church. It's actually we've said this before on the podcast. It, you could easily fill your week with the needs of your parishioners, which means you don't have time in your week to be exploring. You know, what about the outside? What about those who don't yet know Jesus? And so, the you need to intentionally put in to your church ministries and structures and, and for individual ministers need to put in particular time uh, that will be spent towards you know, the, the outsider, um, assuming that that's one of the goals of you, your church and your ministry. And I know that's a, a huge passion of Stu, and we said before, a firm Stu in his natural evangelist mm. you know, uh, gifts that he's been given by God. is that He loves spending time explaining the gospel to those who don't yet know Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, but that needs to be a conscious choice because, you know, there is so much administrative, legal, sermon preparation, pastoral needs of parishioners and all those kinds of things. Um, it's interesting he's coming about AA, um, that it, churches become like AA. I remember reading, I think it was a Christianity Today article many years ago um, that was bemoaning the fact that churches are not enough like AA. <laughs> um, and the comment was that in AA, things get real, really real, real quick um, because everyone is very vulnerable. By the time you get to AA, you are broken. Um, you know that you're nothing uh, and you know you need the help of this community. Uh, and this other article from a number of years ago uh, was saying, uh, you know, kind of wishing that our church's small groups were more like AA um, and with the, I think the undertone was that a lot of our small groups and all of our churches uh, sit at a surface level veneer Christianity where it's really easy to walk into church and go, yeah, I'm fine, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, great, excellent, okay, next person. Um, and even in our Bible studies, you know, we, we go through a passage and we exegete it together and we ask and answer comprehension questions and then we ask for prayer points and you know, it's like, oh, yeah, kind of struggling with work. If you pray for work, that'd be great. And, oh, I've got this sickness, be great for healing. Um, and, and it can kind of bubble along at a surface level, maybe get a little bit deep, but uh, rarely do, do those conversations get to the brokenness and the vulnerability of people in AA who are just like, I'm just wrecked as a person. Uh, I'm so just completely dependent on this. 
uh, you know, my sobriety got tested this week and I completely failed and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting other use of the same analogy that um, we come in and, and become the, the holy huddle. Mm. Um, mm. And, yeah, whereas there might be times when actually we're not enough like AA, which I thought was something that stuck in my mind as well. But, mm. yeah, there's, there's a few random collection of <laughs> thoughts. But it shows that our experiences affect what we've what we kind of talk about too. Is that what you're going to say, Stu, or something else? Oh, yeah, I was reflecting on that. I, th- I agree with that 100%. And I think, I think also with the AA analogy, a lot of people think we are AA. And I think a lot of people who aren't Christians look at us as weak people. Like that goes right back to the teachings of Nietzsche in the Enlightenment when he was mm-hmm. saying that Christians are just people who can't cope with life and they need a crutch. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just look down on us as a group of people who are just not that strong. And we need to believe in some spaghetti monster in the sky to get by in life when the majority of people are saying there is no God. Um, I think. And you shouldn't need one. That's the whole. Yeah, 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 well, kind of, yeah, well it's know. a very Australian thing to just be your own person. And whether you're a man or a woman, I think it's very Australian to, oh, you know, we, we've toughened it out, we're getting through it. But under the surface, there's a lot of alcoholism behind closed doors and a lot of. A lot of abuse in our communities mm. there's a lot of things that you know we we continue to talk as if education and materialism is going to be the answer to everything and mm. deny that there's a spirituality and it's at our cost i think it's to our detriment mm. yeah i think i think somehow churches need to continue to be a spiritual ecclesia and a spiritual gathering we gather around jesus and as we you know, live our lives in the community and invite people to come and see how we live. I think, I think the more we can continue to be Jesus-shaped communities and get excited about that, we'll get excited about sharing that with other people, and they'll they'll get to see that the church is different. I think the church is going to look more and more different over the years. I think, as I've said on an earlier podcast, I can't remember the exact words I used before, but you know, the church was seen as daggy and irrelevant. Then it was seen as uh, dangerous and I think it's by some people and now I th- and people are antagonistic towards it but I think in the future it's going to be maybe seen as desirable again delightful I think you said I think too. delightful mm. yeah actually that was the word mm. because people will be delighted by some of the things that we take for granted that they used to take for granted that they were in the process of leaving losing as a society I'll never forget Paul Tate telling me he's an ex-missionary in Russia I, I don't want to take this too long because I know we need to wrap up mm. but he was an ex-missionary in Russia for a while and he noticed a stark difference between the communist culture that he went into that had been around for 60 years, I suppose, that had taught people that there is no God. And he felt that in the city he was in in Russia, there was a devaluation of human individual life. Right. And he illustrated that by one day he went to work and there was a person who was actually deceased on the side of the road and in a frozen state because it was a cold day and people were just walking around that person and it was like oh that someone will come and pick that up i suppose but i was just contrasting that to a country where if someone passed away on the street here it would not happen mm. people would all stop they'd call the police they'd call an ambulance they'd, they'd probably cover the person with a with a, a garment to you know but there was just oh well who's that i don't know who they are it's not my problem mm. so i think that some of those instincts of let's look after other people 
are still within our society. And Tom Holland talks about it in Dominion. I think it's going to be really hard to get rid of 2,000 years of teaching about think of the other and care for the neighbour. And even a lot of our progressive movements have sprung from that kind of impulse of let's look after the poor, let's look after the yeah, needy. Yeah, absolutely. And so some people might be thinking, but aren't those progressive moments still going to contribute to that? But I've got a sense that because they're based on a secular reality and don't include God and there isn't part of those impulses to help other people don't include giving glory to God and doing it in his strength. I think there's something missing in that modern expression. Mm. But it's still there. Um, but mm. how long it lasts, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I think, um, conversely, you're saying that progressive movements. I think there's a lot of conservative movements too doing the mm. same thing but without God yeah, as no, well. Like there's yeah. this m- a move towards traditional values. Yeah, good point. The same, yep. the same thing. Yep. It's It's two responses but without the yeah, spiritual that's element that you're talking yeah, about. I, yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. That's a good point. So Dave's last point says, he says, I understand why an insider-focused church culture happens, but it means that there is an emphasis on church size and speed of growth. Mm. Even He says it becomes idolized because it provides safety in numbers, mm. which can invariably lead to a never-ending comparison and competition for assumed limited resources, something you brought up just then. Mm. Uh, when church size and speed are prioritized and celebrated, some church leaders will feel compelled to hold on at all costs to the people and resources that they have and become suspicious of the motives of other churches in their area. This can lead to churches identifying and promoting magnetic, outgoing personalities who naturally attract more people and can lead churches to mistake confidence for competence and certainty for credibility when it comes to choosing leaders who will fast-track church growth and therefore it elevates a fragile arrogance, he says, which causes them to avoid feedback or change. That's an interesting point for church leaders. Anything you want to throw in there quickly before we wrap up the episode, Tim? Yeah, I was just thinking about his competition point, and um, I was actually thinking about this about what Stu was saying a little bit earlier. But the uh, I think one of the outcomes of the church growth movement um, in the sort of the late eighties, early nineties, and through that era was you were also um, competing against other churches you were trying to create a better experience better children's ministry better youth ministry better music uh better welcoming better coffee better car um, park better car park um and you know there was for a lot of i mean the the best version of that is so the outsider wants to come uh and experience that uh, and say, oh, this is you guys have really got something going here. I should check out your Jesus. Yeah, I think that would be the the best version of why you do those things. Um, but I think what actually ended up happening a lot more was that you just were shuffling sheep between different paddocks. You know, uh, you just had a lot of Christians who were moving between different churches, mm. um, which leads to what he's commenting on here: that you become suspicious of other churches because all of a sudden I've lost five families or five members to that church down the road. What are they doing? They're doing something better. I should do something better, rather than actually trying to say, "Well, I'm not. I'm not here to gather Christians um, into my church." Though, of course, you know, church is predominantly the gathering of God's people around God's word. Um, but the, the missional aspect of church is I want those who are not yet Christians to come and experience this. So, uh, and this is one of the things we've tried really intentionally to do is to talk about ourselves as a church amongst churches. And a significant part of that is to say, if, if you, you know, leave our church to go to another church, God bless. That's, I mean, that's awesome, man. If you're a Christian, 
Okay? And there's a church down the road where you'll grow as a disciple of Jesus. Okay, that, that's fine. We really want to be on about the mission of Jesus to see people who are not yet Christians come to know him as Lord and Saviour. Um, and we need strong disciples of Jesus in our church to be the ones who help do that. So, of course, we're building up. We talked about this last week, the doubling up of discipleship. You know, we want people to double up in their personal growth and their mm. vitality as a disciple of Jesus. Absolutely. Um, but it's uh, not just of benefit for them and their relationship with Jesus. It's also of benefit to their friends, neighbours, colleagues, those who are not yet friends with Jesus too, um, so that they feel equipped to go and spread that message. Um, and, yeah, so, yes, there does become that suspicion um, but uh, and competition element. Um, and I think we talked about this a few, uh, oh, maybe middle of last year, but a conversation that I'd had with someone in the diocese uh, about how all Anglican churches used to look the same. They used to have the same billboard, the same colouring, the same everything. Um, the blue sign. The blue mm. sign, yeah. yeah. There was the, the Sydney Anglican blue. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you just – and basically what that encouraged was that if there was no point driving past this church and this church to get to the third church over there because they're all pretty much – exactly the same they all follow the prayer book um the only difference may have been some slight you know uh presentation from the minister um and personality but largely they all the same then for the sake of trying to contextualize to your community um they said as a strategy actually let's not just try and be mcdonald's everywhere um let's try and be particular noticing that if you're a church in the southern shire or the southwest or the northwest or the northern beaches you're going to have different demographics you're trying to reach so rather than all trying to be mcdonald's everywhere let's try and be um, unique to your um, locale but what that inadvertently did was you then had all of the churches um, prioritize their differentiation and that then um, accidentally creates competition because if I'm in this suburb but three suburbs away, three Anglican churches away, there's um, their differentiation is something that resonates with me. Um, I'm going to drive past three Anglican churches to get to the further one away. Um, and so you ac you're accidentally creating this competition. Um, and so I think that kind of feeds into some of that mm. um, stress as well, which again, I think we talked about last year, when you're the minister and you're seeing people drive past your church to go to another church, um, and your identity is wrapped up in how well you're doing ministry, that's really easy to lead into burnout and feeling of depression and, you know, uh, insecurity of, you know, why, why are people, why are Anglicans <laughs> in my suburb driving past my church to go to that church over there? Uh, it's really hard for that not to um, affect you spiritually and, and relationally. Mm. And I suppose like uh, student... I leave leave you to comment on what Tim was saying too, but it's also the rise of like an individualism in regards Absolutely. to that is yeah, that yeah. I'm going to go to the church that best serves my needs. Um, and it's it, just to finish off, it's, it's not just I mean I said Anglican, but it's actually not just Anglicans because I don't mm. think there's many people in 2023 who are passionately Anglican. <laughs> um, they don't think of those denominational boundaries. It's it's more like I'm an evangelical Christian, um, and most. Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, Churches of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of those are kind of within the mix of churches I would try out. Mm. Um, and so, yes, it, it's the denominational title I don't think matters a lot for people in 2020. Yep. Stu, you got your final words? Yeah, just quickly, I think that 
when you need to get a critical mass and your church is struggling and people are leaving, it's really difficult. Mm. And I've been in that position in a small context and uh, saying goodbye to people that were really needed. And if you don't have a critical mass, you can't really grow. I don't know what that critical mass is. could be for another podcast. But I actually have been thinking a lot lately about networking. As I, Well, actually, I've been spending my whole ministry yeah. thinking about networking. Yeah. <laughs> but I think if we network together and we work with each other, I think that's for another podcast. But I think networking is, is the solution to mm. a lot of that competition. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So you're working together, as mm. like, as Tim said, church amongst yeah. churches yeah. rather than... Yeah. Let's try and influence mm. it, influence who's coming to our church, and that's it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you to Dave for providing the, mm. yeah, thank the you. material for really the podcast. Yeah, yeah, they're really, good. really good. And um, of course, if anyone else wants to join the conversation, you can email me at joel at shockersover.com.au. But uh, thank you very for everyone that was listening and being paying attention to what mm. we're putting out there. Mm. Thank you to Tim and to Stu. It's been thank a you. very engaging podcast. So thank good. you very much. Yeah, thank you. And we'll finish with a one way. One way. One way. One way.